This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. A reminder that we are doing a special Christmas Day episode, which is also going out on uh, Times Radio. Me and Marianne Foster picking over uh, some of the weirder best bits of our uh, Times Radio shows in what we are calling Matt and Mariella's Selection Box. Well, if you want us to say hello to you on the podcast or on the radio, uh, then get in touch with me now. Email me a hello. Let me know what you're going to be doing on Christmas Day. Who are you with or not with? Uh, maybe you want to say, maybe you don't know what to buy someone for Christmas and uh, hearing their name on the podcast will make them happy. Uh, all you need to do is email me, matt.chorley at times.radio with all the details. And we'll say hello to you. Lovely stuff. Right, coming up on today's episodes. Have you had a busy year? Probably not as busy as Alok Sharma, the COP26 president. He spent the whole of 2021 sort of touring the world to try and get countries to sign up to new climate change targets. I've caught up with him to see uh, how his year's been. He describes uh, how his nostrils have taken a battering as a result of all the COVID tests from travelling around the world. Uh, Why he got upset at the end of the COP26 summit. And... Uh, what his plans are for the next year as Auditor-in-Chief, holding countries' feet to the fire to make sure they deliver on their promises. Really, really fascinating interview with Alex Sharma coming up. Uh, it's not often you use that sentence. Uh, but first, as ever, is our columnist panel. Normally it's night at the Marriott, but no Marriott today. James Marriott is poorly. We've got a note from his mum and everything. Uh, so uh, joining Indian Night today is John Stevens from the Daily Mail. Have you spent uh, the morning drawing up a list? Who is you're making a list and you're checking it twice? Who who are you going to visit this Christmas, and who isn't making the cut? India, are you cutting back? I am cutting back. I'm on a. Comp- <clears throat> I've also got a really horrible cough, but I've just tested negative, which is good. Um, uh, I'm completely cutting back. My only priority is my children. My children must be here for Christmas, and every everybody else is, you know expendable I'm, I'm being really brutal about it um so yes i've i'm cancelling things things around me are being cancelled by other people and i think you know everybody is just desperate to have their nearest and dearest around them on christmas day and after that we'll think about it but at the moment yes full culling mode <laughs> john are you doing the same are you culling well, I'm not culling. I'm being cold. Um, literally. Um... <laughs> yeah, that that dinner around at India, India's is off is out of the way. Yeah, sorry. 
I know. Um, so, I mean, everything I was due to do basically in the last week has been cancelled. And I'm not being particularly careful because I had COVID a few weeks ago. So I, I think I'm probably all right. I'm not, you know, worried about getting it again so soon. But most of my friends have all cancelled things. You know, I had to text them some this morning just saying, oh, um, the party we're meant to have the weekend. I'm not going to have it. I just want to see my granddad. I don't want to spend Christmas isolating. Another friend yesterday messaged and said, oh, I know we meant to see each other at the weekend, but my dad's got a pacemaker operation in the new year. I'm just trying to be a bit more careful. And I just think that's basically what everyone's doing. No one's really waiting to listen to what the politicians say because they just don't want to spend Christmas alone and isolated. And I think that's just quite sensible, really. It's to, uh, I was quite interested because we've been talking about this um, with some, you know, people who ran a bar and that sort of thing, that we are, we are essentially going into a a form of lockdown by stealth. But the economic impact of that could be huge, India, that we are, we're, it's essentially like last year, you know, don't go to pubs and restaurants and nightclubs and parties and theatres or whatever else, um, you know, and be very careful. You know, I think, well, I was listening back exactly this time last year. On this very day was when Boris Johnson was saying, if you are going to visit people at Christmas uh, from five days before, start, you know, keeping yourself away, have yourself a merry little Christmas and all of that. But at least this time last year, there was lots of financial support for pubs and bars and so on, which just doesn't seem to be there this time. The economic impact of this could be huge. Yes, I feel incredibly sorry for them. I've got friends who own um, cafes and and restaurants, and it's just a complete disaster because everybody's cancelling, all the bookings are vanishing, and there's nothing in place to, to, to support or help them. So that needs to happen. I think Mr Sunak should maybe not be in Santa Monica um, oh no! And now my phone's going. Um, that's, I think that's, Rishi. Speak... that's Rishi. That's <laughs> Rishi saying, "Yeah, he's cancelling you. He's not inviting you to Christmas." <laughs> um, but what... No, it's just. Hang on, I'm going to get rid of this person. You go answer just... that. I'll speak to John. Um, <laughs> John, is there a risk for Rishi Sudak here politically? He's he's been he's actually been incredibly popular the last eighteen months. People have forgotten how many times he wanted to end furlough uh, and you know open things up. He actually um, wanted to be. He was actually very uh, popular for a lot of the support he put in place. Could he undo all of that in the next sort of two or three months? Do you think if he doesn't do the same? Yeah, I think you are right about people haven't noticed how many times he's done his own personal U-turns. I mean, last year. He announced his winter economic plan, which was a watered-down version of furlough. And then before it even come into place, the whole deal got ditched and he just went back to kind of classic furlough as it was. But I don't think people really noticed that. But the whole idea of him being in California is slightly more eye-catching. People do remember these things. Remember Sajid Javid when you had the problem of people crossing the channel two years ago I mean then it was just dozens of people coming a day and it wasn't really a crisis compared to now then he went on safari to Africa and then there were all these calls for him to come back from his holiday earlier so I think people do you know a politician abroad in a moment of crisis it does get noticed I mean he says he's away on a work trip you know it's a four-day work trip it's packed with meetings, but he does own a holiday home in Santa Monica. I think he probably is working. I think that is the case. But I think people will question, where is he? And Labour are certainly trying to capitalise on it. They've got a UQ today, a urgent question in Parliament where they're asking Rishi Sunak to come and talk about what support he's going to give to business. Well, 
Obviously, Rishi Sunat's not going to be there because he's not going to hot-foot it across the Atlantic. But you're going to have Labour having a free hit there. I'm sure they'll be posting on social media all about how Rishi Sunak was absent, how he had to send a junior minister in his place. And, and I suppose, actually, um, uh, India, um, who was it on the phone, by the way? Anybody on exciting? Somebody else cancelling? <laughs> um, no, I, I don't know what they were saying. It was a friend, stupidly. And that now she's texting me going, oh, no, I'm so sorry, you're on the radio. <laughs> she keeps texting me. <laughs> so it keeps pinging. Um, anyway, California, I think the problem with California also is rather like safari. You know, the word is so evocative. You immediately yes. think of kind yeah, of yeah, yeah, yeah. miles of golden sands and blue skies. If he was in Gdansk or, I don't know, Tirana, you know, people might mind less. But the, but the associations you make with California are so pleasant and so unlike the situation at home that I think it really doesn't help, even if he is in meetings all day. And it's so him as well, isn't it? All yeah, that. Exactly. He, he mentioned working in California twice in his party conference speech, which is what we've got in the the music that we play, you know, and all that sort of, you know, even if you can't see it yet, the future is here nonsense. It all sort of fits with him. Is the hoodies, mm. the sliders, there's something a bit West Coast sort of internet startup. And, you know, there's a touch of the Mark Zuckerbergs about him. Do you know what there is? It's quite Meganish, isn't it? There's a touch yeah. of the Megans about him, which hadn't occurred to me before. I wonder how that'll work out. <laughs> maybe maybe he'll decide he wants to take a step back from, uh, from his life in the government and move to California and start a podcast um, <laughs> John um, this, this, uh, this, story, this, this perception that it's now Boris Johnson versus the scientists uh, which uh, you know, makes several of the front pages today not least uh, your own um, do, is is that just the reality of where we are in the in the in the in the pandemic now? That Boris Johnson needs to think about things other than just the, the virus. That you know, there's the economic factors, there's the social factors. You know, that, that actually, it's always been slightly politics versus science. There's always been that yeah. tension. Yeah, and I mean, he's definitely got a difficult balancing act this week after that vote in Parliament. He has got on one side the scientists, on the other side he's got his Tory backbenchers. And even though he's obviously avoiding bringing in any new restrictions, I think that Tory MPs would be annoyed if he was too forceful with the advice he was going to give to the public. But, I mean, you listen to what they said yesterday. The scientists did go a bit further. I mean, Chris Whitty said, don't mix with people you don't need to. Nikki Kanani, who's from the NHS England, she said, if you're going to a football stadium this weekend, make it to get a vaccine, not to go to a football match. But you go back and listen to the language Boris Johnson used, and he was also talking about being careful. He said, we're not cancelling events. But he said that he thought people's instincts would be to be quite cautious. And I mean, Chrissy Whitty was saying similar things to that, saying people will prioritise the things that matter to them. And so obviously the scientists were going much further. It's easier for them to go much further. But Boris Johnson, you know, the, the message wasn't totally different in different directions. It was just I think they were able to go a bit firmer, while Boris Johnson is very careful at the moment that he doesn't create further rows with his backbenchers after this week. Yeah, and I suppose that, yeah, he's he's, he's walking a line between, well, can you walk a tightrope between three sides? Uh, between the scientists... <laughs> Is that a triangular type of... But between the... <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about. Just... I think you're stuck. It's... I think you're on the ground if you've gone between three different posts. But Well, he's more... it's more, I suppose, that he's in the circus. He's not on the tightrope. He's just sort of standing on a pole and he could fall off in any direction. <laughs> in that he's got... Uh... 
He's got the scientists, he's got the public, but he's also got his own MPs that he needs to try and keep happy. I'll tell you what, let's leave, let's leave Boris Johnson standing on the top of a pole in a circus. Uh, let's talk about books, India. There's a, a story in the papers today that par- uh, parents are being urged to move on from reading the same old classics to their children and expose them to more popular books. Uh, so uh, ditch the, the Enid Blyton and the Beatrix Potter and, I don't know, what read them Fifty Shades of Grey or something. Um, what, what do you make yeah, of this? It's a weird story because I don't know. It, 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 <clears throat> the Oxford University Press, whose concept this is, um, say that parents tend to read to their children the books that they were themselves read as a child, hence Enid Blyton and Beatrix Potter. I must say, I don't know anybody who's who only reads Beatrix Potter. They might read Beatrix Potter once in a blue moon or Enid Blyton, but, you know, normally it's a mix of classics and and contemporary stories that you read children. And I think I don't like the idea of binning the classics. I think, you know, the the, the, the OUP's point is that <clears throat> those stories are too undiverse and don't contain, aren't particularly relevant to the modern day, but actually they're all very kind of moral stories. They tell children you know that it's good to be polite to be courteous to think about other people to not be selfish to share da, 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 da. and then you know you can supplement that with stories about all sorts of people doing all sorts of different things or having more unorthodox lives i think there's lots of room for both i think it would really be a shame to lose to lose one yeah, and I have to say, some of, so one of the books they've recommended is called The Pirate Mums, about a boy mm. who has two pirates for mums but wishes his family could be more conventional until he has an adventure. That that I'm sure it's very good. It does sound slightly, John, like that might have been dreamt up by a committee. <laughs> yeah, it does sound a bit contrived. I mean, I also find it quite funny that this suggestion of diversifying the books you have that you give to your children has been come up with by a um, book publisher. It's like, well, I can work out the motivation there. We'd like to recommend these books. (laughs) (laughs) We've got these new authors who aren't really selling well, but ditch the popular ones. Come on, um, buy these. But yeah, I can see what you mean there. It, It does sound slightly too forced that, you know, if issues do come up in books, it can be helpful to talk to children about different things that they've read about and it can start a conversation. But when you start trying to force that from the top, I think then it starts to get a bit desperate. Also, children um, would complain. I mean, you know, a a good book is a good book and a good yarn is a good yarn. And it doesn't really matter when it was published, I don't think. India Night and John Stevens there. And of course, you can read India in the Sunday Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, it's my chat with Alex Sharma. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. Have you had a busy year? Bit of work, family, holidays, children to look after? Well, imagine if you were tasked with saving the planet. Well, that's exactly what happened to my big guest today. Alok Sharma was the business secretary until January the 8th, when he was officially named president of the COP26 Climate Change Summit to be held in Glasgow in November. So began a whistle-stop tour of an overheating planet with all the difficulties that travelling at a time of Covid can bring, before then chairing the two-week summit, which ended in an hour of frantic, at times emotional negotiations. Well, I got caught up with Alok Sharma, and I started off by asking him what success looked like at the start of the year when he took the job. Yeah, so I think we we set out fairly uh, quickly on uh, at the start of this year what success looked like. Uh, And, um, you know, we we said that what we wanted to do was to limit uh, global warming and to keep the Paris temperature goals uh, within reach. And, uh, you know, back in 2015, the world came together and world leaders said they would do everything they could to keep temperatures uh, well below two degrees, pursuing efforts to 1.5 above pre-industrial levels. So that's why we always talk about keeping 1.5 alive. So that was the overarching aim. And then we talked about what we wanted to do in terms of getting countries to commit to more financing to support uh, developing countries to, you know, take actions to cut their own emissions and a whole range of other things that we wanted to get over the line, including after six years, concluding on all the rules governing the Paris Agreement, because that was a, a historic agreement, but it was a framework. All the rules, many of the rules were left for future COPs. So that was very important uh, to get done. And, and we did, right? I mean, I think what we got over the line was pretty historic in Glasgow, but now we need to make sure that all of those commitments are actually delivered on by, by countries over the next few years. Yeah, we'll talk about what your what your next 12 months looks like. Uh, you, you did a lot of travelling this year, partly to sort of get people on board with the agenda, but also to see for yourself the impact that climate change was having. When you look back, where where have you been uh, in this role where you thought, oh, blimey, this actually is is pretty serious. What's the bit that sort of really, really sticks in your mind that really hit home the, the, the real-life impact of climate change right now? Yes, I mean, I went to actually quite a lot of climate-vulnerable countries, and, um, uh, you know, there are a number of them that sort of stick out. One is a, a visit to Barbuda, uh, and, um, you know, we, we got there on the island, and this was hit by a hurricane four years ago. And actually, I had our uh, our uh, um, high commissioner with us uh, who came and he'd been there but sort of in the aftermath of it four years ago. And he was saying that actually there hadn't been a great deal of reconstruction. Um, and if you stood there in the middle of Barbuda, as I did, and you looked around, you would literally think a hurricane had come in a few weeks earlier. I mean, the place was still devastated. And, uh, you know, what's incredibly sad is that lots of people have not been able to return to their homes. I mean, we've had forced migration because of this climate event. I did talk to 
uh, some of the community who are still on the island. And um, you know, they said to me, they're pretty fearful about the, the future because they can see these climate events becoming more ferocious, more frequent, and that's why they wanted the world to take action. I mean, it's really quite sobering. I mean, I was in, in, in Nepal, I went uh, to meet some of these communities in the Hindu Kush uh, mountains. And these are folks who were displaced from their homes because of a combination of drought and flooding. So, uh, you know, you, you, you talk to these people and you understand at a very human level what climate change is doing to millions and millions of lives around the world. Is it a problem, or when you were sort of trying to bring together some form of agreement, that, that those countries on the front line tend to be poorer, smaller, less economically significant, and therefore get slightly brushed aside, that actually if what was happening in Barbuda or, or you know, some of those other places, if that was happening in some of the big, you know, the big G7 economic countries, we might be a bit more gripped by the urgency of it. Yeah, so, I mean, the, the one thing I, I was very clear about when, when we sort of took on this role, that, of course, the UK has to be neutral in terms of this, this role of acting as, as, uh, as, as broker or shepherd-in-chief, as I describe myself. Um, <laughs> but on the, on, the, on the other hand, um, you know, I was always very keen to champion the developing countries, those on the front line of climate change, because you know, the, the, these are people who are not responsible largely for the problems that they're facing. Uh, and actually, you know, you, you talk about the, the big economies. Actually, we're all facing this right now. I mean, just just look at what's happened this year. You've seen uh, you know, terrible flooding in, in, in China. Uh, you've seen that in uh, Central Europe. You're seeing wildfires raging in, in America, in Australia. I mean, even in our own country. I mean, talk to farmers. They will tell you the impact that climate change is having on the, the yields of their crops. So this is something that all of us are facing. And you know, if we look around the world now, Matt, we are in a pretty fractured international politics. And yet on this one issue of climate change, the UK, because we built trust over two years, we were able to get almost 200 countries to agree on the Glasgow Climate Pact. Uh, and I think that shows that actually countries recognize this is a universal challenge that we all face. Doing all that traveling around the world, you must be one of the most swabbed and tested uh, people uh, on the planet. Did you, how was it trying to go to those places? Because obviously sometimes if you are in negotiations, you want to be able to sit across the table from the people you're, you're, you're dealing with. But how was it doing all of that in a, in a COVID world? Well, I can tell you that my nostrils took quite a battering over this, uh, <laughs> over this, this year. And actually, I, I don't think very many people know this, but uh, my team have put together a league table of, how can I put it like this, the most stringent testing regimes <laughs> around the world. I think for diplomatic reasons, I'm not going to reveal. Who oh, is God, that's the obvious no, question. No, who's who is, who's well, been the most aggressive with your nostrils? M Matt, I've got another year of the presidency to run. <laughs> Maybe I will come back this time next year and tell you. But, but it's, I mean, on a sort of serious note, it, it's um, you know, quite a challenge uh, traveling during these COVID times. And, um, uh, you know, I'll give you some examples. You know, when we went to sort of South Korea, for instance, um, we um, went straight uh, from the airport, met by people in hazmat suits, taken to a quarantine hotel, tested, and then you stay there until your uh, test results come back. Uh, you know, whereas in Japan, again, straight into uh, effectively sort of quarantine environment. And, and, you know, everyone around the world has obviously taken uh, very strong measures to make sure that uh, they avoid the spread of COVID. But it did add to the added difficulty of um, 
uh, you know, traveling, but also actually organizing this conference. I mean, yeah. up, you know, we del- as you said, we delayed this by a year because of COVID. That is completely understandable, but climate change didn't take time off during that year. And I was absolutely determined that we have this in physical form this year. And frankly, we, we wanted to make sure, and this is what we were being told by these, these climate vulnerable countries, they wanted to sit at the same table face to face with the big economies and the big emitters. And we put in place uh, a, a testing, a, you know, daily testing regime, people wearing masks at the venue, uh, making sure that we, we highly encouraged uh, vaccinations. Uh, and actually the incidence of COVID positive cases uh, in, uh, during that two week period with the, with the delegates was I think something like sort of two in a, in a thousand compared to the Scottish population of between 11 and 12 per thousand. So, you know, we really made it safe. And not only that, but we wanted to make sure that anyone who was coming, any delegate who was coming, was able to get vaccinated if they couldn't do it through their, their own sort of vaccine regime at home. So the Prime Minister put out this offer some months ago, and we helped delegates in over 70 countries get vaccinated as well. We made a big effort, and actually people have really appreciated that. There you are, then. You get to, co- to Glasgow. It's all set up. Thousands and thousands of people are there. A lot of pressure on you to bring it all together. How did you go about doing that? I know you met Barack Obama, and I remember reading his his memoirs, and he talks about exactly this sort of thing where it comes down to the crunch moment in the last hours of the of the thing. And it, I can't remember which was it Copenhagen where he sort of he he ambushed a meeting of the where the Chinese were sort of dish, you know, carving out something, and he's he he found out where they were and he sort of ambushed them. Did he give you any advice on what to do in the final hours of the summit? Well, I, I had a chat with him actually more about what we might do in our presidency. And, and the one bit of advice at the end he said is that when this is all over, go and have a long holiday with your wife. Uh, I, I haven't yet <laughs> taken up that piece of advice, but that may that may come. But but actually for, for me, those those um uh, those two weeks, that sprint at the end, of course, uh, it was vital. And then, you know, as you said, really dramatic last few hours. But actually, the reason we were able to get this deal over the line is because we had spent two years, and I'd spent this last year traveling, making those relationships, building the trust, so that when you got to the crunch point and you said to countries around the world, guys, this is you know, a, a deal, you're not gonna be happy with all of it, no one's gonna be happy with everything, but this really does move things forward in terms of more money for developing countries, uh, more plans to cut emissions, uh, more support to help you to adapt to a changing climate, that's what delivered this result in the end, having built that trust over two years. And you know, we, we talk a lot, as politicians, we talk a lot about global Britain. Well, I'll tell you one thing, Matt, this was global Britain in action, right? This is the UK having built this trust amongst almost 200 countries, which allowed us to deliver uh, this, uh, this climate pact in Glasgow. Uh, all that time, two years of, of planning, all that travelling, all that talking, it all, two weeks of talks then in Glasgow, and it all comes down to, it seemed at least, to one word. The phase down or phase out of unabated coal power. Is that a fair characterization of, of, of exactly what happened? Or is that just because actually it's such an enormous thing, there was so much going on? It, did it really just come down to that one word? Uh, well, so I think that the first thing to say is that, I mean, this was, um, you know, I, I've described this as playing a little, little bit like uh, playing Jenga, right? So what we were doing is building a tower of commitments from countries around the world. And there's a lot of commitments that countries have made, including coming back at the end of 2022 on their 2030 emission reduction targets. 
And then all it needs is one country to pull one piece of this thing out and everything collapses. I mean, it, it literally is like playing uh, Jenga. And what was running through my mind in those final hours was that, you know, we couldn't really lose two years of work. And so in the end, as you saw, you know, China and India uh, raise these, this, this issue around coal, around fossil fuel subsidies. Um, but I think the first thing to say is that for the first time ever in any of these COP decisions, did we get this agreement on coal, on phasing down coal. First time ever. I mean, this is absolutely historic. And I do think it, it sort of spells the, the, the death knell for uh, domestic coal around the world. Uh, and, uh, you know, from, from my perspective, uh, it was ensuring that we, we obviously you know, worked on this language. But then, as you, you will have seen, if you were watching this, this thing sort of unfold, I was very keen to make sure that the other negotiating groups, the leaders of the other negotiating groups, were able to see what this language was before we had the formal process of whether or not this should be adopted. So it was, again, about building that sort of consensus. And it was because we'd built the trust over two years that we were able to get this over the line. Uh, it was, uh, you got a bit emotional at the, at the very end of it all. I'm deeply sorry. I also understand the, the deep disappointment. But I think, as you have noted, it's also vital that we um, protect this package. What was going through your mind when that moment happened? I mean, so much pressure. Presumably not a huge amount of sleep either. No, not a... Not take, a take me back a, to that moment. Yeah, I mean, certainly not a, a great deal of sleep. I mean, I, I normally don't sleep more than about sort of five hours a night. But on, on, on this occasion, I mean, if you, if you imagine you are in a, in a hotel room for a few hours trying to get some kip, uh, you go out, basically, uh, you don't really get to see sort of daylight. You're moving into an office which has no windows. Uh, and it was that, you know, for almost three weeks. And in those final three days, I think I must have got about six hours of sleep in, in, in total. So obviously, you know, I was quite tired. And um, uh, for whatever reason, during that day itself, I don't think I'd eaten anything at all. So I was sustaining myself with Lucozade tablets. Uh, if you look very carefully, I was sort of <laughs> surreptitiously putting Lucozade tablets uh, into my mouth. But, you know, I was, uh, of course, it was emotional. It was emotional for a number of reasons. One is that we were getting something historic over the line. But my disappointment, because a number of people picked up on this, that I was disappointed. I wasn't disappointed with the outcome. I mean, this is a historic outcome uh, on, on, on any count. What I was disappointed by was that after two years of being very open and very transparent in the way we ran this process, people felt that the final hours had been a little bit opaque. And I understand that. And, and you saw that being expressed uh, by countries on the, on, on the floor, people talking about their deep disappointment. And that's what I apologized for. But as, as I said, I mean, I think overall, what we got over the line is something that actually all countries should be, uh, be very happy with. Of course, they now need to deliver on the commitments. Did you feel a bit ambushed at the very end? The, the waiting? No, because obviously China knows that you want to get a deal. So wait until the very last end and then, then pick up on this, this issue of phase down or fade out. Or, or did, you sort of, did you know it was coming? Look, I, th I think with these uh, these multilateral negotiations, there is always some drama that takes place on the final day. I mean, uh, one of the things that I did do, I mean, this was my very first COP, by the way. So it's quite an interesting thing to be COP president on your very first COP. But one thing I did do was to uh, talk to 
previous COP presidents uh, about what had happened during their time, how those final negotiations had been. You know, I'm, I'm quite a sort of detail-focused person, so I did quite a lot of analysis on that, talking to people. So I think there was an expectation that something like this would happen. Uh, you can never be sure precisely uh, how it'll work out. But the one point on, on coal, as I said, it's the first time this is in the, the, these texts, but I was also absolutely determined when we were having this discussion with the Chinese and the Indians, that the, the language on coal, the word coal, had to stay in this text. And we managed to do that. So what happens now, Alok Sharma? You, you, you've, you've, I assume you had a bit more sleep than uh, six hours in three days that you managed in, in Glasgow. Not, you know, and maybe, maybe even a meal that was not a Lucasade tablet. But what happens next? What's your job now? Um, uh, so, yes, I've had a little bit more sleep and hopefully I'll get a bit more over Christmas. Uh, but the job now is that our presidency uh, actually started on the 31st of October and we have a year to run up until next November when Egypt take on the COP27 presidency. Uh, and, uh, you know, what we're going to do is have what I would describe and the prime minister, I think, uh, is very supportive of this, is a full fat presidency year. And that means that we are going to be working with countries around the world, ensuring that the commitments that they have made are delivered on, the commitments to cut emissions, uh, to look again at their 2030 emission reduction targets, uh, to make sure more finance is available for uh, developing countries, to make sure that actually the private sector, which is really focused on, on uh, climate action now, uh, actually comes forward and we can get some private financing as well to help countries around the world make that transition to uh, you know, clean energy, for instance. Um, all of this we will be doing, but obviously we'll do that uh, together with uh, our uh, friends in, in Egypt and the UN. Who, which countries have you particularly got your eye on just to make sure they really do stick by their commitments? Um, well, I mean, uh, frankly, I mean, all countries have made these commitments, so they have to deliver. And uh, I was saying to you earlier, Matt, that you know, I've, I've uh, uh, talked uh, at the COP and before the COP uh, as being the sort of shepherd-in-chief. And uh, I mean, that role of shepherd-in-chief continues, but I will be morphing also more into auditor-in-chief uh, because that's what we need to do. We need to make sure that uh, the commitments that have been made are delivered on. And you know, one of the things that we, we, we did manage to do was to reach agreement on the outstanding rules of the Paris Agreement. And one of those key elements after six years that we, we managed to get over the line was an agreement on transparency. So that means now we have a common way that countries uh, will report on in terms of the uh, emissions that they're cutting across different sectors. And so we will be able to see when countries make a commitment, whether or not they're actually delivering on those commitments. And that is really, really important. And it provides a real underpinning uh, for what we would try to achieve. How confident are you that everything that was agreed in Glasgow will stick and the, the knock-on effect then on uh, keeping temperature rises to one and a half degrees? What's the chances of that, that, that slipping and, and therefore the catastrophic impact of climate change as a well, result? We, uh, we, we, can't, we can't afford for it to slip. I mean, you know, going into this COP, I think there was a lot of scepticism that we will be able to do as much we, as we have managed. Uh, but, you know, we pressed forward and I, I want to pay tribute actually to... Uh, all the civil servants who did a brilliant job, not just in delivering a really safe COP, but also all our negotiators, uh, you know, the folks in the foreign office uh, across different government departments who work really closely together to ensure that we got these commitments. And commitments actually not just from, from uh, countries, but also from, from companies. The sort of corporate sector has really 
uh, uh, come forward in terms of recognizing that uh, you know net zero uh, is actually a big growth opportunity for them. So I don't think we can, uh, the, the world really can't afford for countries not to deliver on their commitments. But the key thing now is that we have some of the mechanisms in place to hold countries to account. And if things move really pretty fast. You know, if, if we'd been having this discussion, Matt, this time last year, and I said to you, do you know what, we're going to have, uh, during the next year, we're going to have all the big economies that finance coal projects internationally saying they will stop doing it from the end of 2021. If I said to you that we would have countries uh, uh, saying that, uh, you know, they would um, phase down unabated coal, then, you know, you would have been skeptical. But we managed to do that. And I think the other thing that's worth saying is that look at how far we have actually come over the last few years. Before Paris in 2015, scientists were telling us that the world was heading towards six degrees of global warming by the end of the century. After Paris, because of the commitments that were made, they said we are heading to below four degrees. And now, with the commitments that we've got from Glasgow, we've got reports, independent reports, saying that we're heading to below two degrees. Now, we need those commitments to be delivered upon. And as I said, in Glasgow, uh, we've kept 1.5 alive, but the pulse is weak. And the only way you strengthen that pulse is for everyone collectively to deliver on the commitments that they've made. Um, and what about our own our own lives? What, what should we be doing? There's obviously lots of discussion beforehand about what we as individuals need to be doing and the role of government. Now, I know, one, you know, again, on fossil fuels, one of the, the Climate Change Committee suggested that gas for home heating uh, should be taxed at 20%, not the current discount of 5%. That would help to shift people away from gas. Is that the sort of thing that Britain should be looking to do, essentially ending that, that sort of, essentially a fuel subsidy uh, through government? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, we, we actually set out um, a net zero strategy uh, some weeks ago and um, actually was praised by the Committee on Climate Change who said it was sort of you know, world leading and, and um, it was a, effectively an exemplar that, uh, that other countries could look to follow. Um, so you know, we, we have set out a strategy in terms of how we get to net zero and different countries start from different uh, starting points, right? So they will have different paths in terms of how they get uh, to, to net zero in their economy. But you know, this is another area where I think we've made a lot of progress during this year because when um, we first got the COP26 role about two years ago, less than 30% of the global economy was covered by a net zero target. We're now at 90% of the global economy covered by a net zero target. So there is a clear realization that this is a direction of travel. And as I said, I mean, if you look at the price of renewables, for instance, around the world, they've fallen sharply. The take up of renewals is way, way higher than people were predicting you know, five, 10, 15 years ago. Uh, there is a real pace and momentum here. We just need to make sure we accelerate that even faster. Um, I need to ask you because, well, she came on the show a couple of times, actually. Allegra Stratton was obviously the Prime Minister's COP26 uh, spokeswoman. She came on our show. Well, the first time she came on, she admitted she had a diesel car. And by the second time she came on, she'd got rid of it uh, as a result, I think, of some of the comments that resulted from the first interview. We saw that she resigned last week, not actually had anything to do with working on COP26, but because of that, that leaked video. I just wondered what impact you felt she'd had in that role and how you felt when she resigned last week. Well, look, uh, I mean, Allegra was uh, a, a great colleague. Uh, she was a very valuable member of the team. She was the Prime Minister's spokesperson on, on COP. Uh, she spent a lot of time uh, talking to uh, stakeholders, to uh, businesses, to civil society. Uh, she talked to our, our, uh, our sponsors. Uh, she spent a lot of time on this. 
and you know the prime minister very rightly paid tribute to her and i, and I also want to used this occasion to pay tribute to all the hard work she did. And she was a, she's a great colleague. She's a great colleague. She was looking to buy an electric car. Have you got one yet? Uh, no, I'm in the market right now. Very good. Well, maybe we should go, maybe the new year, we'll get, we could go and test drive some. We could do a sort of tin pot uh, top gear. Yeah, well, if you, if you want to put forward a detailed suggestion, I'll happily look at it, Matt. That sounds very good. That sounds very good. So looking back then on your on your year, I'm sure there've been lots of windowless rooms and uh, fueled on on bad coffee and so on. But there must have been some surreal moments. What's been the weirdest thing that's that's happened to you in the past? 12 months in your role as well, COP president. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say weird, but I mean, you know, one of the things that, uh, that I've managed to do in this role actually is to meet uh, lots of people that I would otherwise not have, have met. I mean, I, I spent time uh, with uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, sort of talking to him, people like Bill Gates, Al Gore, Nancy Pelosi. Uh, and actually, I, I also had, and uh, I think I don't think there's any other circumstances under which I would have done this, but I um, uh, spoke at Central Park uh, as uh, part of a, a, a global event uh, that took place there called Global Citizen Live. Uh, so I got a chance to say a sort of few words about uh, uh, you know, why climate change was important. Um, and uh, actually, I, I went on straight after Cindy Lauper. Um, <laughs> a, a few people clapped when I spoke, just to be clear, but far, far more clapped for Cindy Lauper than they did for me, but I mean, it's it's been a great it's been a great experience in that sense, you know, to be able to to to, to meet people and uh, you know have this opportunity to you know try and make a, a a difference as well. And the one thing I can tell you is that wherever I've gone uh, in the world, actually, we talk about meeting uh, sort of you know, famous people. That's one thing, but actually, I've also had an opportunity to meet uh, lots of uh, youth uh, delegates, lots of uh, civil society groups. Uh, around the world, and I can tell you that people around the world are absolutely committed to ensuring that we limit global warming and we take proper action uh, and that they put pressure on their own governments to ensure that those governments take action so we get climate change under control. And I see your true You see, it's no, you don't get that anywhere else, do you? I mean, an interview with a cabinet minister that ends with Cindy Lauper. But uh, really good to catch up with Alex Sharma and, and, uh, and see how his years unfolded. But, you know, he's got a tough year ahead to try to get countries to commit to those, um, those targets. Albeit ones that only hold uh, uh, temperature rises to, to just under 2%, trying to keep 1.5 alive. That's all we've got time for on today's episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. And you can listen via the Times Radio app. Catch me Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, live on Times Radio. And if you want to come on and play the hugely popular quiz, can you get to number 10? Email me your details, matt.chorley at times.radio. And we'll get you on very soon. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. 
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.